scripture reading can be found on page 7 in your bulletin. And uh, before we read, please uh, join me in a prayer for illumination. Dear Lord, just as you inspired the mothers of our faith, faith, grant us your knowledge and discernment so that we may be clever in our compassion and courageous in our faith. We pray this through Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, today's scripture is uh, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. So if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever in you is earthly, fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. These are the ways you also once followed when you were living that life. But now you must get rid of all such things, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have stripped off the old self with its practices and have clothed your, yourselves with the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge according to the image of its creator. In that renewal, there is no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. The word of the Lord. As was already mentioned earlier in our service today, it was graduation week uh, here at the UW. And uh, all week long, I saw students in their, their black graduation gowns and, and caps walking around the campus. Have you ever stopped to think about what a strange outfit that is? I mean, this long black dress and weird square-shaped square, square hat. I mean, it's so strange. But, but graduation is a big deal, right? So we put on these new clothes to show that we have a, a new identity and status. Well, in these weeks after Easter, we're considering the implications of the resurrection for the Christian life. And we've been saying that the resurrection was not just a, a solitary event uh, for one man, but that through Jesus' death and resurrection, God has inaugurated a, a new creation that we are invited to be a part of. And to show this, Paul uh, uses the image that we hear in this passage uh, in Colossians 3 of putting on new clothes, like a graduation gown. And we heard it in verses 9 and 10. Uh, you have stripped off the old self with its practices and have clothed yourselves with the new self. This is the pattern of the Christian life, taking off what is old and putting on what is new, dying and rising with Christ. So last week, we looked at the foundation of the Christian life in, in the first four verses of Colossians uh, 3. Uh, a Christian is someone who's been united to Jesus by faith, so that what is true of him is, is true of them. He, he has died and been raised again. And if uh, you believe the gospel, you have been died and been raised again. So today we're going to focus on uh, verses 5 to 11. 
What do we learn here about the Christian life? Three things. The Christian life requires a new kind of effort that we see in verses 5 to 8, a new kind of motivation in verses 9 and 10, and finally, a new kind of community in verse 11. So a new kind of effort, a new motivation, and a new community. So first, let's consider this new kind of effort. We said last week that Christianity is very different from the way that we normally think about religion. Usually, people think that the goal of religion is to become something that we are not. Uh, They say, I want to be a better person, so I'm I'm going to get some religion. I'm, I'm going to go to church. But Christianity is different. It begins by being welcomed into this intimate union with Jesus at the very beginning of the Christian life and then becoming who you already are in Christ. It's like showing up for your first day of college and being handed a graduation gown. Congratulations! You're done! The Christian life starts at the end with, God's, with, with confidence that God's acceptance of you does not depend on your achievements, but on Christ's. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. But this does not mean that the Christian life requires no effort. Growth in Christ-like character, becoming the people that God means us to be, doesn't happen automatically. It's not enough to just say, uh, just believe, and everything will just happen naturally. Paul makes this clear in in verse 5. He says, put to death, therefore, whatever in you is earthly, fornication, impurity, passion, evil, desire, and greed, which is idolatry. And and in verse 8, he says, but now you must get rid of, or or put away, or, or put off, all such things as these, anger and wrath, etc. These are calls to action. Uh, we must put in effort to do them, but it's a new kind of effort. Let, let me explain what I mean. I once saw a short interview with a graduating college senior who was asked what she wished she had done differently in her college career. Uh, her reply was striking. She said, I wish I'd partied a little less. People always say, be true to yourself, but that's misleading because there are two selves. There's your short-term self, and there's your long-term self. And if you're only true to your short-term self, your long-term self slowly decays. The command to, to put to death what in us is earthly is a command to attend to our long-term self, our soul. More and more, I've come to think that the the most urgent question that that many of us need to wrestle with is not, you know, do I believe in God? I mean, that's important, of course. But, But even more pressing for many of us is the question, do I believe that I have a soul, an essential core 
that is being shaped by my choices and desires and loves. We see Paul's concern for our souls in these verses. In verses 5 and 8, he draws a line between our inner attitudes and our external actions. Look at verse 5. He begins with fornication. This comes from the Greek word porneia, from which we get the, uh, the word porn. It can refer to a wide variety of, of sexual immorality. And then the list moves more and more inward. Impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Uh, the, the point is that underneath the, the outward and obvious sins are deeper unseen springs. The, the second list does something similar in verse 8, but it moves from the internal to the external. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive language from your mouth. As we identify behavior in us that, that needs to change, it's not enough to just try and change the behavior. You have to go deeper to the roots of the behavior in the heart. Really, Paul is applying here the teaching of Jesus, who said, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Luke 6. To change deeply like this from the heart is difficult. It requires hard work, honesty, and courage. It means uncovering things within us that we would rather not see. And it means giving up control and receiving help from the outside. C.S. Lewis captured the dynamics of change like this well in, in The Great Divorce. Uh, the Great Divorce is, is a parable about a group of people in hell who get on a tour bus to heaven as ghosts. And as the story goes on, you learn uh, the stories of these different ghosts. And one of them is kept from heaven by his lust in the form of a little red lizard that sits on his shoulder and whispers in his ear. And, and this ghost encounters an angel uh, who offers to remove the lizard so that the man can stay in heaven. And there's just one condition. He must let the angel kill the lizard. And here's how the conversation goes. Uh, would, you like, would you like me to make him quiet, said the flaming spirit. Of course I would, said the ghost. Then I will kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Oh, ah, look out, you're burning me. Keep away, said the ghost, retreating. Don't you want him killed? He didn't say anything about killing him at first. I hardly meant to bother you with anything so drastic as that. It's the only way, said the angel, whose burning hands were now very close to the wizard. Shall I kill it? Well, that, that's a further question. I'm quite open to consider it, but it's a new point, isn't it? I mean, for the moment, I was only thinking about silencing it. Because up here, well, it's, it's just so damned embarrassing. May I kill it? Well, there's time to discuss that later. There is no time. 
may I kill it? Please, I never meant to be a nuisance. Please, really, don't bother. Look, it's, it's gone to sleep of its own accord. I'm sure it'll be all right now. Thanks ever so much. May I kill it? Honestly, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure I shall be able to keep it in order now. I think the gradual process would be far better than killing it. And after some more conversation like this and hesitation, the angel finally gets close to the lizard again, and the ghost cries out, Get back! You're burning me! How can I tell you to kill it? You'd kill me if you did. It is not so. Why? You're hurting me now. And the angel replies, I never said it wouldn't hurt you. I said it wouldn't kill you. Often this is what we are like uh, with our sin. We don't really want it killed. So we settle for silencing it temporarily because it's embarrassing. Or, or we find the gradual, appro- the gradual process uh, that allows us to keep it preferable. We are like St. Augustine who prayed as a young man struggling with sexual purity. Lord, he said, make me holy, but not yet. In order to put to death whatever in us is earthly, uh, we need a, a new kind of motivation that can go down deep enough to change our desires and, and will. In verses 9 and 10, notice what Paul does. He comes to this one command, do not lie to one another. And he gives a, a reason, actually two reasons, to, to motivate obedience. Now, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have stripped off the old self with its practices and have clothed yourselves with the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. Paul motivates by grace, not by guilt. He doesn't say, remember, God has done a lot for you. Now, you better do a lot for him. Instead, he says, you've received a gift that you cannot earn. Now live into this reality that you've received by faith. Be who you are in Christ. There's another way that we might motivate change that Paul also avoids here. Uh, That's motivation by pride. Do any of you remember that that game, the whack-a-mole game? The, The big box with the moles that pop up out of the box and you have the big mallet and you hit the moles Some of you don't seem to remember this. This is like my favorite game as a kid. You know, they they pop up their heads and you get to slam them down. Uh, And the more moles you whack, the the more points you get. Uh, You know, this is how we often approach our character character flaws. We take the whack-a-mole approach. Uh, When we see something wrong, we whack it down. And we think of the Christian life as a competition. Uh, We motivate change not by guilt, but by pride. The person who gets the most points, whacking down their sins, wins. The Bible gives us a whole different approach. It, It doesn't mean beating ourselves up or puffing ourselves up. The gospel invites us to open up the box where those moles are coming up out of, to see where they're coming from, and to change at the source. This requires requires looking at our heart and and the habits and and the patterns of our lives that shape our souls. 
Let me tell you a story uh, to illustrate what I mean. I have a friend named Juan who grew up in a wealthy family in Colombia, South America. And from a, a very young age, Juan was rigorously trained to be a tennis player. And he was very good. By the age of 12, he was a tennis national champion, and he applied the, 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 tennis, the, the, the mindset that tennis had given him to the rest of his life. He was a top student in his class, he was a gifted singer, and he came to college in the United States on a full tennis scholarship, and he graduated at the age of 21 with a degree in electrical engineering. After graduation, he was hired by an American multinational company to work in Colombia, and he did very well. Uh, by age 25, he had become a manager, and he had a bright future at the company. Externally, he was a picture of success, but internally, he was a mess. He was angry, exhausted, and lonely, uh, and he decided that he was so unhappy because he was not using his musical gifts and not living uh, full-time as a musician. So on his 25th birthday, uh, he quit his job to pursue uh, life as an artist. And as with everything else, uh, he worked very hard and he did very well. He was declared the young Pavarotti of Colombia. Uh, Pavarotti himself bestowed that title on him at a competition. And he moved to New York City to continue his opera career. Five years later, he found himself in a hospital bed with a tube stuck down his esophagus. He was seriously ill. His stomach would not stop producing acid. And the ulcers that had plagued him uh, his whole life had become life-threatening. After 30 years of abuse, his body and his mind had had enough. He was broke, he was broken, and he was considering suicide. And just at this moment, some Christians that he had met stepped in to care for him. They gave him a place to live, food, clothing, medication, friendship. They showed him a kindness that wasn't dependent on his achievements. And they told him about this Jesus who loved him and and died for him. Juan placed his trust in Christ, and and eventually he married one of the, the women who cared for him during this time. He became a new person. He gave up the pursuit of a life of fame, and he he got a regular job, and he started a family. This is when he discovered that the the real work began. Uh, Because in everything he had done in his life, he had always been able to apply his initial training as a tennis player. He could flip a switch and push through uh, pain. He He could disengage emotionally and just overpower any opponent. He called this Super One. Uh, but as he began to live the Christian life, in his marriage and with his children, uh, he found that this didn't work very well. Uh, when he had an argument with his wife, for example, he couldn't just switch on Super One and overpower her. Or when he had to get the children ready for school. He began to realize that he'd been shaped by his experience in the world in ways that gave him skills for winning tennis matches and being successful in lots of ways, but not for loving self-sacrificially and generously, being weak, 
forgiving and being forgiven. I tell this story to invite you to to think about how you've been shaped uh, by your life in the world, by your upbringing, by your choices, by your habits and training. For those of you who are in a rigorous academic program, don't underestimate how the skills and mindsets that are being instilled in you are shaping the kind of person that you're becoming. Like my friend Juan, you will find that the skills that have been instilled in you may be great for publishing papers and conducting experiments, but they will not be sufficient for the whole of your life and relationships. If you belong to Christ, then you've been given a new way of being with and for others. We're going to talk more next week about what it looks like, not just to take off wrong attitudes and actions, but but to put on new ones, to to practice love. But there's one essential uh, for this that we see in our passage today. The Christian life requires a new kind of community in which the barriers that normally divide us have been removed. Verse 11. In that renewal, there is no longer Greek and Jew circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarians, Scythians, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. In Christ, barriers of racial division are removed. The Greeks and the Jews were the greatest example of this in the ancient world. Barriers of religious ritual and tradition are removed, like that between the circumcised and the uncircumcised. Barriers of culture are removed. The Greeks And the Romans looked down on barbarians, and the Scythians were a remote tribe that were considered the most barbarian and the most inferior. Finally, socioeconomic barriers are removed. Both slave and free have equal status in Christ. This all means that in order to grow in the Christian life, we must be in community with people who are different from ourselves. Why? Because the goal of the Christian life is learning to love like Jesus. In verse 10, Paul says that the new self is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. And in Colossians chapter 1, he tells us that the image of the creator looks like Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. It's only in a diverse community that you can learn how to shift the center of your life from yourself to Christ. That's what's needed in order to grow in love. You have to die to your selfishness, to your own preferences, your own ways of doing things. When you are the center of your life, you will naturally see other people as either threats Uh, threats to your priorities, or as competitors for position. And you'll respond accordingly to, to them with either fear or with pride, depending on how you compare to them. But when you believe that Christ is all, and in all, you no longer look at other people in this way, no matter who they are or how different they are from you. Instead, you begin to approach them as fellow image bearers meant to reveal God to you. No matter how 
you might struggle in relationship with them, you can practice loving them. We love because God first loved us. Do you remember the story I, I told earlier from the great divorce about the man with the lizard on his shoulder? Well, in the end, he allows the lizard to be killed. And the result is a complete transformation of the man and of his desires. The man is healed and made whole, and the lizard becomes a powerful stallion. Lewis's point is that when we go down the path of, of submitting to death, the death of our ambitions and of our idols, this is how we find true life. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. This is the promise of the gospel, friends. Because Jesus died for our sins, we can die to our sins. Because Jesus took up his cross once and for all for us, we can take up our cross daily and follow him. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Gracious God, uh, we are more broken than we realize. If the things that are wrong with us do not need minor surgery or, or better instruction, uh, but need to die, we are so hesitant to submit to you in this and to tear down our idols. We are afraid that you're not really good and you will not keep your promises to us. We cling to pride as if we can do it all on our own. Help us to see that you love us more than we could ever imagine and that you ask nothing of us that you have not been willing to endure yourself in the person and work of Jesus. Help us to know your love in him and empower us to change by his spirit so that we might become more like him in all our relationships, in our friendships, in our families, and here in your church. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.